welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. So today's topic, we'll be digging into climate justice, what it is, and why it's important. And before we get there, what did you know before we started preparing for today's episode? Well, probably not as much as I should have. Um, you know, I, I do basic things from doing reading. And if you're, you know, if you're looking at, at climate issues these days, I feel like climate justice is something that I, I see people talking about more and I see more articles about it. And some of the episodes we've done, there's definitely been some issues that we've touched on at kind of an, a nation state level of, you know, right. climate injustice. But I'm excited to, to dig to dig in more today and, uh, you know, kind of get a more focused story and a more focused uh, human view of the topic. Similar to you, I was familiar with, you know, what what climate justice is at a basic level, kind of where the, the term came from, but I don't think I fully appreciated all the different facets of it. You know, your point about, you know, nation states being impacted differently. I mean, they're really, it isn't just something that's, that's you know, kind of narrowly focused. There are all sorts of inequities when you talk about climate justice hitting different types of, you know, geographic regions, different people, et cetera. And, and we'll get into that a little bit. It's right. It definitely makes it a, a bigger topic than you can sort of squeeze into uh, to one episode. Oh, for sure. So before we go there, wanted to highlight this week's reason for hope, which is the Biden administration has invoked the Defense Production Act to help boost battery production. And at a basic level, the focus here is is getting companies to develop a, a domestic supply chain, you know, focused on raw materials that are needed for lithium ion batteries, stuff like, you know, lithium, nickel, and other, you know, precious metals. Right. You know, as of today, there's only one operational lithium mine in the US in, mm. in Nevada. And while there's a lot of other sites that are being looked at, there's clearly a constraint in terms of being able to produce batteries and batteries are critical both to obviously the electric vehicles that you know folks are are buying more and more and as well as having batteries to address the variability of of wind and solar you know mm-hmm. we've talked about it before but if wind and solar are going to become our primary energy source right. for renewables in general we've got to have batteries to help backstop them so it's definitely a critical supply constraint and yeah, I was excited to see that that he's taken that step. Yeah, I'm it kind of leads me to a question about possible pushback from, you know, the environmental groups on this where you kind of it's going to be interesting to see where you kind of have the climate groups that are, you know, championing this effort and then possibly the environmental groups who are normally mostly on the same page possibly pushing back against against, you know, these mines going in anywhere in the US. Well, I, I think it's a good question and I think the reality is there's already pushback. Sure. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, folks need to be able to to zoom out and look at the big picture because while, you know, mines can certainly have adverse impacts if they're not done responsibly, mm-hmm. we've got a huge crisis in front of us that could have catastrophic impacts for everybody. And so, you know, at a certain point, you got to look at what's the lesser of the evils, you know, and right. accept the reality that, you know, we as humans have a footprint and we're going to yeah, have a sure. footprint. Yeah, there's going to be impact no matter what you do. Hopefully by having them in the U.S., you're, you're doing a, a better service to the to the planet than maybe in some, you know, other country where they're they're really not 
worrying about that too much and they're kind of just trying to right. crank stuff out. I agree. I, I, I think that while our environmental laws aren't perfect, yeah. to your point, I mean, <laughs> there are countries that have very, very lax laws. So right. having them here and having them under more scrutiny is a good thing. Yeah, I would hope so. And I would think that there's there's got to be some really good lessons learned. You know, I mean, we've we know what it looks like to do it poorly in the U.S. I mean, how many super fun sites are there yeah. out there that that are you know created a result of of mining? So right. hopefully we've learned our lesson. And yeah, while I think environmental groups need to be keeping the big picture in mind, that's not to say they shouldn't be calling for you know sideboards and and providing additional oversight. So right. I think that's good. I just think you can't you can't say at the one hand we've got a you know a climate crisis that we need to deal with, but then you know you're not going to be supportive of the solutions that we need to address the crisis. <laughs> right. Yeah. Agreed. So before we get into today's guest and our interview, we wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of the multiple dimensions to climate justice that we mentioned. You've got one category which are you know folks who are physically vulnerable. Those could be seniors, those could be people with chronic health conditions. And the reality is that they're going to be more adversely impacted with with climate change, you know, whether you're talking about heat waves or other things. And so there's a there's a disparity there, right, that we, we have to be mindful of. You've got unequal financial resources, right? You've got people who have fewer less money to go around, which means they're less able to cope with the threats of climate change. You know, in the U.S., you can certainly see that with like after a forest fire or a flood, you know, obviously devastating to anybody who goes through that. But if you're somebody who has, you know, more financial means, it's going to be much easier to get through that to the right. other side. And and then you talked about this already, but then, you know, the fact is there are there are national differences and, you know, we've got nations that are going to be impacted very differently, like island nations where sea level rise could literally wipe out entire countries. You've got hot areas that are barely inhabitable now. Right. And as climate change worsens, may no longer be. And then there's this unfortunate reality where we have kind of the wealthy countries that have done all the polluting and benefited from, you know, the energy that fossil fuels have provided. And those countries are much better positioned than the countries that have contributed very little when it comes to climate change. Yeah. And, and then I think sort of the fourth category are racial disparities. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the U.S., you've got minority populations that have historically been located in areas that are more prone to floods and experience higher pollution. And now you're going to, you know, you're going to accelerate a lot of those impacts. So it's complicated, right? I mean, there's the reality is there's multiple dimensions to this. Yeah, for sure. So our guest today is Senator Lou Frederick. Lou is an Oregon state senator for District 22, which covers parts of North and Northeast Portland. He was the Senate Majority Whip in the most recent session, has been serving in the legislature since 2009. And when he's not in session, he works as a strategic communications consultant. He's served on numerous boards, including the State Board of Education, the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He's also a PhD candidate at Portland State University. And prior to, you know, being a lawmaker, worked 17 years as a, as a television reporter. So excited to have Lou on the program. 
Well, Senator Frederick, welcome to Climate Optimists. Thank you very much. I like the title. So let's start you off with a, a basic question. When you think about efforts to address climate change, what what gives you hope? Well, that's a very that's a good question because a lot of folks would would go into the sort of cynical realm within this. I, what gives me hope is that I think we're starting to see people acknowledge that in fact we have both an issue and that we want to try to solve the issue. We are a lot of people are no longer just accepting the sort of merchants of doubt approach to to dealing with issues, and that's that's what gives me optimism. So I guess when thinking about communities of color and climate change, do you see unique challenges that that communities of color are facing? You know, how is that different from maybe other demographics? Well, there are past there are past issues, there are future issues, and then there's the approach that that we've seen recently. The past issues include placing communities of color in places that are that have high pollution issues, that have uh, low uh, possibilities of of use of energy well, you know, so that you have old homes with no insulation, basically, using oil as the primary uh, heating source. Uh, many years ago now, now almost um, 15 years ago, a plane flew over Portland, north and northeast Portland, uh, where we live, and it took pictures of the, at a, during a snowstorm, took pictures of the homes and determined where, which houses were letting heat go through the roof, literally. And so you, they, could, they could see that. And they then uh, went, the people at Portland State went and identified those homes and tried to get help for those people to get, get insulation put into those homes. Well, that was a good idea. We still need to do that kind of thing. We still need to understand what's going on coming through the windows, through the walls. We need to understand what kind of water usage is taking place. Uh, we need to have a good sense of the electri- electricity usage as well. We have those issues. We have issues regarding asthma in the neighborhood. That's been a clear situation with diesel fumes. So we're starting to finally address some of those issues, both with the, with the use of electric vehicles and with getting engines that can, can actually burn it a lot better so that we don't have to worry about that. Uh, so we have a lot of things that people are working on. For communities of color, the approach has been in the past, let's get some people who are early acceptors to go and, and buy uh, expensive devices or something like that. And everyone will then supposedly follow along and do that kind of thing. We need to right. we, we've slowly gotten away from that to some extent, uh, but we still have that as a as a, a model that people want to want to take. And, and we need to address that and, and let the communities of color, low income communities, understand that they can they can do better but the the issue is really how do we uh, provide the resources for folks to actually use the new new um, approaches to dealing with environmental issues as well as giving people options that are viable and understand what's going on there's another issue though that I think we really do need to deal with as well and it's something that environmental community has been struggling with for some time whether they knew it or not they were struggling with it uh, it's a uh, paternalism. One of the biggest issues that that I run into is folks saying, "Well, we know just how you should be living. You shouldn't be uh, using this particular product, or you shouldn't be doing this or that because uh, you should be uh, walking to 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 the store rather than driving to the store." Th- those kinds of things, or 
particular kind of food or, or things like that. The paternalism is a real serious issue because, frankly, most many of the um, minority communities and low-income communities are doing the best they can. Sure. You know, this is they're they're, they're trying by. To, to get by. If you know, if you if you don't provide inexpensive things to do, they're going to use what they can to to get to get with what they need to have for their homes and for their families. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating. I mean, I don't think anybody likes to have somebody come in and tell them how they they need to live their life or the way that they're living their life uh, it could be better. And it sounds like too, if I'm hearing you, there's climate change and the impacts of climate change are just are just coming, right? We're just starting to see, you know, more heat waves and wildfires and flooding and that underserved communities, struggling communities were already in a bad place to begin with. You know, they already were next to historical pollution sources and and so forth. So they're starting out, you know, with the deck stacked against them going into a situation where, you know, all these types of impacts are are going to be more frequent and severe. Well, I think you're right there. But the other thing is to try to find out what it is these communities actually need. One of the basic things is, is jobs. And there are jobs available setting up charging stations, not only charging stations that are uh, commercial charging stations, but residential charging stations, putting, putting on solar panels. You, you can do a lot of those things with, uh, with relatively little initial education or training. But you can then take that training and that education and to another step, creating your own businesses to, to have those jobs available so that you are able to afford other things and not be stuck. We need to be thinking about what is it that asking the folks who are in those situations, what is it that you need rather than telling them what they need? Right. That's the difference. And I think we can do that, but we have to come forward with a, a statement that says, we aren't outreaching to you. You're one of us. You're part of our community. You're, you're, you're here. What, what is it that you need that we can help with? Um, what, what is it that you have that you can help us with? So it sounds like the, the best first step in many ways we could be making is, you know, approaching disadvantaged communities, communities that are going to be more heavily impacted, and just starting with listening, right, rather than coming in with prescriptive solutions. Absolutely. I think the listening is going to be a key. Now, there are now people who have stepped forward from those communities. There is an environmental professionals of color group in, in Portland that um, regularly meets, passes along job possibilities, passes along uh, information about recent grants, other information about different places in you know Boston or Atlanta or Chicago that are, are doing certain things, and they try to bring some of those ideas to Portland. So there are people out there ready to go if, if, they're, if, if, they're, if things are available, and they're making things available. So if there are folks there, it's a matter of actually connecting with people as equals, not as, um, as if they are less than, that you need to, to, to support them. It's a matter of saying, okay, what is it that you need and how can we work together to make North and Northeast Portland, Southeast Portland, places in, in La Grande, in, in Ontario, uh, on Coos Bay, how do we work with folks so that we, we provide a good resources? Coos Bay is looking right now at offshore wind and offshore uh, wave energy, p- potentially. What does that mean to the folks who are there? What does that mean to the, um, 
to the native tribes who are there? What does that mean to the Latinx and the, the Asian population that lives in that area? Will that have an impact on them uh, in terms of jobs? Will it have an impact on their, their general livelihood? Will they become middle class within this situation or will they continue to be just barely getting by? Those are the kinds of uh, things that we need to be looking at. And that's what I, I spend probably way too much time on, but that's what I spend a lot of time just understanding, trying to understand uh, what's going on in different places around the, the state. But in Portland, when we had the, the heat, we needed to have places available for, uh, for, especially for elderly folks, but also disabled folks to go to get out of the 110 degree temperatures that we were dealing with, which was completely unusual for Oregon or from Portland. Uh, so we needed to have places available and then find out how we, we, as we passed bills this session that allowed people to put in air conditioning in their, in their rentals if they needed to, because in many cases they were not being allowed to do that, which makes no sense to me, but they were, the landlords were saying that this was, this was something they couldn't allow. So we, we passed some bills that said, yes, you can. Uh, those kinds of things are the kinds of things we need to be looking at. Again, asking people what they need and finding out how to, how to get that uh, for them and, and, and how to get that with them. Uh, that's the key element as far as I'm concerned. So in a way, you've, you've spoken to this already. My next question was really, you know, what can be done to ensure our transition away from fossil fuels is just, and it, and it sounds like starting first with understanding the needs of the community, in addition to that, ensuring that opportunities, you know, economic opportunities that are available for the transition, whether that's putting up solar panels or, you know, installing chargers for electric cars, that those communities get to participate in that as well. And so there's, they're not only reaping the benefits of, let's say, having a, a solar panel on their roof, but being able to reap the benefits of being engaged in that, in that transition. Are, are there other things that we need to be thinking about in terms of ensuring you know, a, a just transition away from, from fossil fuels? It's a matter of not looking at an individual aspect, but looking at a whole and understand that that is involved with poverty, it's involved with education, it's involved with food deserts, etc. All of those things are part of a, of a whole that we really need to be looking at. Some people are doing, but others, they need to see the, for, uh, see the forest for the trees at this particular point. It's, it's sort of interesting because many of the environmental groups um, were talking years ago about the ecosystem. Well, this is an economic ecosystem uh, in many cases, and you've got to look at the, all, all the pieces. They come together in, 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 in more than their, uh, the sum of their parts. One of my colleagues, Michael Dembro, has been looking at uh, how, how we can uh, deal with the issues of diesel and supporting the, the farmers and other folks who rely on that to get their, get their goods to market. I mean, this is the other thing that, uh, that uh, many times I've, I've run into folks and not recognizing that in order to get things to, uh, to the stores, you have to, you, they're using diesel trucks to do that. So let's be real clear about what, what that holistic approach is about. Uh, we need to acknowledge and work with those the, with the people who are doing their jobs. They're 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 bringing green beans up from the from the central Willamette Valley on diesel trucks so that people can have green beans in Portland. I five and two uh, two hundred five and eighty four. If you go and you look, you can count the number of trucks moving through there because they're on their way 
to uh, to commerce either in in Oregon or elsewhere. So we need to acknowledge that and figure out how to help those folks make a change to electric vehicles. Diesel trucks are not going to be going away in the next two years, um, no matter how hard some people would like to see that happen, because in many cases, those diesel trucks cost a whole lot of money. And at this point, we don't have the charging stations for either electric vehicles, uh, especially electric trucks, and, uh, and or hydrogen vehicles, which is another thing that's, that's being suggested. So we're going to need to figure out how that transition takes place, how it's helped along, and who it's helping and who it's hurting. We had a long conversation in the Transportation Committee uh, this, this last session regarding biodiesel and just whether, whether it was effective, whether it created problems for the engines that it was being used in, those kinds of things need to be addressed. But there are lots of policies like that constantly coming up. But we need to both look at the individual policies, the individual issues, as well as the holistic approach, the comprehensive approach, the ecosystem. So, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, it, it starting at the back end and really looking at what are the outcomes that we want for everybody in our community and then backing into the policy solutions that, that support that. I try to look at what, what is this particular policy? Who is this particular policy helping? Who is it hurting? And, and in, to what extent and how do we address those, those issues? so that, 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 no, that no one is left out in terms of support and helping. Uh, that's how I try to look at it. Not always successful, but that's, that's my goal within my, within my approach to many of these issues. Well, I guess one question at a national level, and I, I assume is, can be burdensome depending on the state legislation, is how do we design programs, the implementation of programs, to ensure that they're easily navigated. In other words, I was reading about the, you know, the Biden administration and they have, you know, I think 50 billion set aside for helping make communities more resilient in the face of climate change. But the worry is, of course, that that's going to end up going to all the, the wealthy communities that have the resources to navigate the, the process. So absolutely a fair question. And it's one of those things we run into, not just with, um, with climate change, but we run into it with education, with economic development. We run into it with housing. Uh, who who knows how to write a grant so that you can get the money for something like that. That right. is absolutely one of the biggest issues that we struggle with. And it's a matter of then looking at who's actually getting the money. We did that with the uh, the American Recovery Act money that came in. Uh, we, we started looking at, at who was not who was not getting the money. Well we found out that in fact um, a lot of black uh, businesses were not getting money because, they did not. They did not have the same kind of historic relationship with the banks that other businesses did, and so we we said, well, that's not okay. We're going to make sure that in, in Oregon, we're going to make sure that those businesses get money, additional money, because they were already behind in the first place. But it's a matter of monitoring that. We know what those disparities look like now, especially via this pandemic. We know what those disparities look like. Uh, tracking where the money goes and who is not getting the money, who's not getting the support. It's going to take a while. It's not going to come, happen overnight, but it is now um, more transparent than it has been over the, over the last few decades. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Um, that's, uh, that's one thing. There's another, there's another thing. I, there are folks who use distraction as a way to make sure that nothing gets done. And we need to 
to acknowledge that that's what's going on. Um, I'm sure you've read, have you read the um, uh, Merchants of Doubt? Uh, have you seen that that book? I, I'm familiar. I have not, unfortunately. It's it's on my long list of to reads. So well, it's it, you can read it. There's also a pretty good movie about it. But uh, put simply, it it is set up to try to to find a way to um, both distract and to bring uh, disinformation forward. You you have you get confused. Okay, who's telling me the truth here? The classic example, of course, is the whole tobacco industry, uh, where sure. the tobacco industry knew for for decades that they were selling and promoting a uh, a deadly product, but they 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 kept saying, well. You know, we have some scientists who say it's not, uh, even though they knew it was not true. That's the classic. But we had that. We've had that take place with climate climate change. Exactly the same kind of thing. That's a distraction. That's the that's the kind of distraction that I'm talking about. So we need to be able to watch that, watch for that, and make sure that that doesn't happen. And that really comes back to another issue for me, and that is understanding what science is about, what science itself is about. Uh, is something that we have we've gotten away from, and a lot of that is because we decided to take on a particular approach to to education that said that science was simply regurgitating facts, and and not understanding that it was it is in fact a a process. It is in fact a, something that people look at and they are able to to develop hypotheses and uh, and test them. And work through and understand that they're they're always going to be always is going to be someone who's going to disagree with it, but that doesn't mean that they are actually their their uh, generation's Galileo. I'm going to uh, be speaking shortly uh, in a couple of weeks at a a conference for science uh, communicators, science journalists, um, because we no longer have as many as we once did. So understanding that in terms of science, understanding how media is presented presents science is going to be an important factor as well. So those are, the, are a couple of things that come to mind for me. Uh, identifying distraction and understanding how we approach the issues of science and how we can use that in a way that's going to be effective, again, for all of us. Given that, and, and I certainly, you know, when you talk about the, the disinformation side of things, you know, I've seen obviously reoccurring uh, disinformation when it comes to, to climate science. Do you feel like in sort of where we are today that disadvantaged communities, communities of color, that they are, they have a robust understanding that they're getting the information they need to understand sort of what's coming with climate change and, and how best to prepare for that? I don't think that anyone really has that kind of information at this particular point. Uh, I, I mean, and that's, that's the folks, even the folks who are who are uh, believe that they are very much up to date on that. They everyone's got to recognize that no, that there's still a lot more to be learned. But it it, it it is the it is basically humbling yourself to say we don't have all the information right now. Uh, let's let's find out what it is we do know, and use that to best make the best decision that we can at this point. Um, recognizing that it's not going to be the final decision. But it's it's it is a point uh, a point in time that we can begin to to think about decisions. That's the kind of approach that I think we need to see um, right now, uh, in my view. So, with our podcast, we try to focus on giving opportunities for each of us to to advocate and to help move climate solutions along. I guess as we think about you know climate justice and how to make this transition away from fossil fuels a, a just one. 
are there things that we as individuals, you know, can be doing to help with that? I think that there are, and I'm going to go into a political state in some ways here. Uh, the fact is, we will be having a uh, a primary in, in May for a number of, of legislative elected seats, city council, county commissioner, metro, um, and state legislators, and governor, and, and others. Uh, we have all of those things taking place. It's going to be a good idea for you to, to know who is running, what their ideas are, and how they work well with others who have uh, similar ideas. Um, the, the whole scorched earth approach to uh, elections should be discarded at some point, uh, but we do need to figure out how we work together, how we govern, because governing is a different thing. Making sure that you understand who is out there, how they look at the, t the issues in terms of governing, how they're able to work with people, even when they disagree, is going to be important because that's the only way we're going to get something effectively done. Uh, we can get, we can continue the battles or we can decide to get some things effectively done. And I think we've started to see some people get become effective on things. And that's the, that's the key. So understanding who's out there. Uh, if you want to take the next step, uh, of course, is to, to try to work with, officially work with some of the people who are running for office and, uh, and see if you can help them um, as they're getting information from the general public about what needs to be done and how they can gain support. Uh, there, those are individual issues that you can use. Uh, if you want, if, at the least, if you can give support either financially or by way of uh, of being on Zoom calls or whatever with people, that makes a difference as well. Well, we're definitely all about you know political engagement here at Climate Optimist. So um, great to hear you advocate for that. Well, Lou, thanks for taking the time to talk with us about you know climate change and the sort of the historical disadvantages communities of color have had and, and kind of what they're facing um, as we as we enter an era when climate impacts are going to become, you know, unfortunately more severe. I, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate the chance to talk. So, Todd, what were your uh, takeaways from our interview with uh, Senator Frederick? Well, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know that much about Senator Frederick, and I, I hadn't heard him speak. And, you know, he's obviously a, a very intelligent and thoughtful guy who seems to have a lot of care for, for his constituents, right? And, you know, I think it's obvious that we need a lot more Lou Fredericks out there. We, we'd, be doing, we'd be doing a lot better if we did. Um, <laughs> Agreed. You know, I, I did look a little bit more into some of what he, he talked about with diesel and asthma and in 2016, there was a dirt on diesel report from the Oregon Environmental Council, and uh, it found that uh, the 10 lowest income and 10 highest minority census blocks experience more exposure to all sources of air, air toxins than the average group does. And in Multnomah County specifically, the census tracks with a higher average of, of Black, African-American, and Asian Pacific Islander and Latina residents have two to three times more exposure to diesel particulate matter than census tracts with 90% or more non-Latino white populations. So there's obvious disparity there, right, that, that, that Lou was talking about. You know, another thing, I remember, I remember hearing about this a couple of years ago, and that was kind of the heat island idea, which is, a, which is a problem all across the nation. You know, it can be 5 to 12 degrees hotter 
in some of these lower income areas than it is in higher income neighborhoods, which is which is a staggering difference in number. Um, and it's it obviously is. probably not something that was consciously done, but this is gets back to these problems that I think uh, Senator Frederick was was trying to talk about. These are the results of years and years of of you know discriminatory practices. What happens is there's fewer trees, parks, there's more asphalt exposed to right the sun, and uh, it causes these these heat islands. And other than that, just you know, he's also kind of a man after my own heart. You know, with I read his bio, and he's got actor and uh, ranch hand in there, which is very similar to my background. Uh, I've dabbled <laughs> a little bit in the Portland theater, and uh, it would be cool to to talk to him. Where I, I feel like we're kind of bosom buddies, and I've never even spoken to the guy. Yeah, it sounds like you guys would have a little bit to to chat about. Yeah, well, it's a small world, you know. I mean, he mentioned uh, Legrand in Ontario. We don't even know him. We didn't cue him up for that, by the way. You know, I was born and raised in Ontario. I went to school in La Grande. It was just, I thought it was very interesting that those were the two cities he happened to mention. You know, I hadn't even thought about it until you just mentioned that. But, you know, and of course, our listeners are going, wow, what is, where is La Grande in Ontario? But, <laughs> you know, Google we're, it. <laughs> yeah, a climate optimist, you know, we're headquartered here in Portland, Oregon. And yeah, ironically, the two small towns that, well, town you grew up in and the town where you went to college were both ones that that Senator Frederick mentioned. So yeah, you know the other the other maybe and maybe the biggest part that struck me was when he started to talk about paternalism and uh, and, and you know I, I think well I'm sure we're guilty of that in this podcast, <laughs> right? I mean we we're pretty good at preaching. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it's easy <laughs> to just sit there and say, well, this is what you ought to be doing. But I really liked his approach of saying, uh, what do you need? It's like, it's hard to think about buying electric cars when you got lead in the water and all this stuff that nobody can seem to fix, right? So, Right. If you don't have the basics to begin with, why are you going to be concerned about riding your bike to get your groceries, you know? It's crazy. So I'm wondering, you know, as you talk about the paternalism and asking people what they need and instead of telling them, you know, maybe maybe that's something, maybe that's something Chelsea would appreciate in your relationship. Oh, I'm sure. I have you, you guys been talking or what? You could do a lot of podcast episodes on that. No, I, and not to make light of it, but I think you you're right. It, it before we sort of step into kind of like solution mode and how are we going to move through this crisis, you really got to start to sit down to understand where a person is. You know, you got to meet them where they are. A segue to another good point that I think he made, which is let's focus on creating economic opportunity for these disadvantaged communities because that leads to all sorts of other benefits, right? Like if I have the chance to participate in the clean energy transition by helping weatherize homes or you know installing solar panels or putting in charging stations, yeah. Not not only am I getting, you know, income that enables me to potentially leverage those same things myself in my own mm-hmm. home, but that's no longer top of the pile in terms of what I'm worried about, right? So it seems to me that getting disadvantaged communities involved in this transition that we have to make and making sure that they reap the benefits is going to be essential. Yeah, I agree. So as we're, we're talking about this, some might be thinking, you know, we, we've got a long ways to go, which is true, but there are some promising developments that are starting to take place at a, at a federal level. The EPA completed a pretty detailed report looking at climate change and social vulnerability this last fall. 
where they were trying to quantify differences in how races will be impacted by climate change. Sort of that, like, you got to start with understanding the problem before you jump to, to mm-hmm. you know, what solutions are needed. Right. And as some might be familiar, the White House, the Biden administration announced early in their tenure, their Justice 40 initiative, in which the president promised to deliver at least 40% of overall benefit of federal investments in climate change and clean energy to disadvantaged communities, which, you know, gets at what we were just talking about. So I thought those are both, you know, positives as we sort of look at climate justice and and the the work that we have ahead of us. Right. You know, obviously passing, you know, Build Back Better, as we talked about on the show a number of times, is so important because you, you can't do any of this stuff without without the money, right? And and that's that's the world we live in. And so we're gonna need to get legislation passed to move these efforts along. For sure. And so this leads to the question of, you know, as individuals, like, what can we do? And for this week, have kind of a little bit of a different flavor. You know, Senator Frederick, I think, rightfully talked about the fact that if, you know, you want to make a difference, that it's really important that we all get engaged in our, our elections. And so while it's hard to imagine, there is a an election coming up here in, in November. And so you know, encourage folks to take the time to start looking at the candidates that are running for office, take a look at both sort of their stance on climate change and climate justice. And then I think equally important, as he mentioned, is how do they how are they going to work with the other side of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to have an awareness of a problem, but if you can't work with your other lawmakers, then nothing gets done and we see no progress. So right. I think taking a look on both those fronts is is important well thanks for tuning in today uh, i think that's a wrap come back next week for more climate solutions reasons for hope and ways each of us can make a difference climate optimists is made possible by climate stewards collective you can find us on the web at climateoptimists.co and don't forget to check us out on social at climate optimists podcast mm-hmm.